The Holy Gospel according to Mark, the fourth chapter. Glory, Glory to, to you, O Lord. When evening had come, Jesus said to the disciples, Let us go across to the other side. And leaving the crowd behind, they took him with them in the boat, just as he was. Other boats were with them. A great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat, so that the boat was already being swamped. But he was in the stern, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him up and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He woke up and rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Peace, be still. Then the wind ceased, and there was a dead calm. He said to them, Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? And they were filled with great awe, and said to one another, Who then is this, that even the wind and the sea obey him? The Gospel of the Lord. Praise, Praise to you, to you Christ. O Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable unto you, O Lord, our Maker and our Redeemer. Amen. One of the most difficult questions there is for believers, an oft-nagging question that has left some believers sometimes wondering if they can even keep on believing, is one version or another of the question, why do bad things happen to good people? To which, of course, someone might say, well, nobody's completely good, we're all sinners, so why shouldn't bad things happen? Which is fine as far as it goes, and true enough as far as it goes, it's just that it really doesn't take the question away. It just kind of kicks it up the road to birth some other questions. Like, then why do bad things happen to some sinners and not others? And why do bad things happen to some sinners who do truly love the Lord, while other sinners who truly do just seem to love sinning go merrily along without a trouble in the world? Or why was it my loved one who died tragically or died too young rather than someone else's? Or why am I the one who got lung cancer? I didn't even smoke. Or why is my child the one who, seemingly healthy as can be, died in her crib? All of which finally, of course, ends up boiling right back down to pretty much the same question. If God is God, and if God is love, then why doesn't God keep those kinds of things from happening in God's world? The Bible's most extended treatment of that question is found in the Old Testament's book of Job, which some read as a history book kind of example of bad things happening to good people, while others, including me, read it as a profoundly crafted reflection on the reality of bad things happening to good people. But in either case, at the beginning of the book, we meet this man whose name is Job. And he, he's not perfect any more than anyone in the Bible this side of Jesus is ever presented as perfect. But by human standards, by our standards, compared to you and me, Job is introduced as being a very good man, a righteous man, a man who loves God and worships God and lives for God and prays to God, confesses the sins of him and his family to God, a man of whom God, it seems, is actually quite proud at the intro to the book of Job. 
And Job is rich in every way. He is rich with family. He is rich with wealth. He is rich with possessions until his possessions and his family and his health are suddenly, dramatically, tragically, painfully taken from him. Taken from him. Why? Oh my goodness, if only the book would tell us more than it does. All that it does tell us, which is something but not everything, is that what happens to Job happens because Satan, not God, Satan wants it to happen and because too God allows it to happen. Why does God allow it to happen? Why doesn't God stop it from happening? Doesn't say. It just says that it happens. And Job's friends, and these by the way are his church friends. These are people who like Job are people of faith. They hear what happens. And they're good friends. They don't just post a thoughts and prayers emoji on their Facebook page. They go visit him. And you know how sometimes things are so painful, you just don't even know what to say. And you know that whatever you might say, it just won't possibly be enough. Job's friends apparently knew that. And so what it says is that for seven whole days, they didn't say a thing. They just sat there in the dust and the dirt where they found their friend and they shared his pain and they shared his silence. Finally, after seven days, Job at last speaks and his friends listen. But from the beginning and increasingly as he goes on, they find Job, their friend, hard to listen to because Job asks hard questions. Questions with which Job ends up questioning not the existence of God. That doesn't seem to be an issue with Job. He believes God exists. What he questions is the fairness of God, the goodness of God, which is to say ultimately the righteousness of God. And Job's friends finally decide, you know, they've been listening silently long enough. For one thing, Job was starting to say things about God that were starting to sound not just wrong, but actually disrespectful. Plus, he was asking questions as if there were no answers. And you know what? They knew answers. And so, after those seven days, they one at a time started speaking up with their answers. Except their answers were, by and large, versions of the things people so often say. Still, they're versions of the simplistic kind of answers that don't really answer anything ultimately, but also don't make anybody feel any better, except maybe for the ones who are answering. And I imagine you know some of the kinds of answers I'm talking about, answers like, it's the will of God, Job. God must be trying to teach you something, Job. Maybe you've gotten a little self-righteous lately, Job. Is it really such a godly thing to talk about how much more godly you are than other people? Maybe, maybe we've always seen you as being righteous, Job, but obviously, I mean, you've done something, something only God can see, because in spite of what you've been saying, Job, you are wrong, Job. God is fair which means that bad things don't happen to good people. So confess your sin, Job, Job, and in the mercy of God, you will be healed and restored. 
And for 36 chapters, Job is not a short book. For 36 chapters, this goes back and forth. Job questioning his friends, his Job questioning and his friends taking turns answering. Job complaining to them and they then taking turns correcting him. Job arguing with them and they then taking turns arguing back. And all the while, they are getting more and more fed up with him and his self-righteous whining. He's doing as he sits on what seems like a self-righteous pity pot. And Job, at the same time, is getting thoroughly fed up with them and their self-righteous sermons, telling him people only get what they deserve, which, of course, would only mean that the reason he's suffering and they're not is why? Because they're more righteous than him. Which means they may well have gone to find him in the depths sitting beside him, but they spoke to him from their soap boxes, judging from above him. Through it all, though, it becomes increasingly obvious that ultimately Job's argument isn't with them. Job's argument is with God, as seen, for example, at one point where he says to his friends who had come, and this is paraphrased, but I think it's pretty, pretty true to what Job says. He says, essentially, I want you've come. I want God to come. I want God to come here and bring an attorney because I've got a wrongful injury suit I want to file. I'm going to file it against God. Finally, 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 God comes out of a whirlwind, it says, and God speaks and the beginning portion of what God says is what uh, we heard read just a moment ago in our reading from Genesis 38 where it says that then God answered Job out of a whirlwind, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? My paraphrase, who is this spouting on cluelessly about things that are way above your pay, pay, pay grade? And God goes on, gird up your loins like a man. I will question you, and you shall declare to me. My paraphrase, put on your big boy pants. You've questioned me. Now let me ask a few questions of my own. And then God starts asking Job questions, which we only heard the start of uh, in our reading from today as Kate read it, but because in the book, God actually goes on for four entire chapters of questions for Job. My paraphrased summary of the whole thing pretty much being, where were you when the world was created, Job? Tell me how that happened exactly. Surely you know. And where were you at the beginning when I created time out of timelessness and everything out of nothing? Explain to me how that worked exactly, Joe. Where were you when galaxies of stars were hung in the heavens? Tell me how many of them there are and how exactly they got there. Where were you when even one molecule of life was brought to life for the very first time? Tell me how life came to be exactly, Job. Answer my questions, Job, and then I will answer yours. 
And then after four chapters of that, do you know what Job says? Basically, I don't know the answers. And I don't have any more questions. And he falls to his knees and repents. I've heard people say, when I get to heaven and see God, I've got some questions I'm going to ask. I think I've said that in the past more than once. I, um, I don't say it anymore. Not because I don't have questions. I have boatloads of God questions. But you want to know why I don't say them anymore? That when, say that when by grace alone I get to heaven, I'm going to ask God my questions because seeing God, I, I just don't imagine that I'll even be able to remember my questions. I imagine instead um, I'll be on my knees without even going there on purpose. I imagine my face will be on the ground before I even consciously think of the fact that I should bow down. And when at last I can talk or want to talk, I imagine the words I say will not be questioned. I imagine the words I say will be worship. This was Job's experience in the end. What satisfied him were answers to questions that, let's be clear, he, he couldn't have begun to understand if they were given to him. What, saved, what satisfied him was a God who came to him not with answers which weighed, no doubt were way above his pay grade, but came rather with God's own presence, which leaves Job in the end saying to God, I had heard of you only by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. And at that moment, that moment in the presence of the awesome awesomeness of the almighty almightiness of the God who had come all the way to him in his suffering, that moment moves him to his knees. And the thing is, he really doesn't know one more thing than he ever did about the ways of God and the fairness of God by human standards. But he's fine. I want to suggest that at this point he's even grateful for the fact that human standards aren't the standard. For Job isn't God. God is God, and God is there with him. And what God says, what Job says, is that knowing that, he knows everything he needs to know. And in the presence of the awesomeness of God, he repents in dust and ashes. And he lets his questions kind of fall down into the dust with him because they don't ultimately matter to him anymore. Because why? Because he has come to know that the one who does know all also knows, cares about him. And how does he know God cares? He knows because God came. We, of course, are blessed to be able to know the answer to the question Job came to know. The answer which doesn't explain all things but assures us that the God who is the God of all things, including things we can't explain, does come to us, is with us, and cares about us. We are blessed to be able to know that in a way Job couldn't, not because he couldn't have handled the answer, but because he wasn't yet given this answer. The answer I'm talking about being the answer not written, written in the hidden awesomeness of the heavens.
but rather in the flesh and blood of the awesome one who unhid himself to become one of us. And as one of us, in a few places in the Gospels, he actually himself asked God the Father some questions that by and large, to my ears, anyway, rhyme with some of the questions Job had also asked. There's nothing wrong with asking the questions. And in at least one case, in the fullness of his humanness, in the allness of his just-like-us-ness, his questions weren't answered either. Indeed, the very, very last question he asked of the Father, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, is a question that seems to have been heard and answered only by silence. Silence into which he then said, Father, into thy hands I commit my spirit. He died, in other words, holding to the only thing there was that was bigger than his questions, that being his faith. And he, the one who did become us, is the one we met in today's gospel reading, where he was tired like one of us, tired and resting in the stern of a small boat on the Sea of Galilee. Then that storm rises and his disciples are terrified and they shake him awake with a question of their own. We're going to drown. Don't you care? And Jesus sits up and he stands up and he looks at the churning waves and he orders them to stop churning. And he stares into the blowing wind and he orders it to stop blowing. And they do stop, yielding to an instant and dead calm. And can you hear him, what he said then, in the calm? Remember? Why are you afraid? Have you still no faith? Notice Jesus did love his disciples enough to calm the storm, but he actually loved them enough to tell them one more thing too, that being that they hadn't needed to be afraid, even when it was stormy which of course is something he wants you to know as well in this world where, well, facts are facts. And the fact is that the weather is sometimes stormy. As storms of all kinds do at times rage, sometimes they rage around us, sometimes they rage even more strongly within us. And they do that for all kinds of reasons, some of which we can understand, some of which maybe we can't. Here is which, what Jesus wants his disciples to know, and by his disciples I mean you too. Don't be afraid. You don't need to be afraid, ever. Not because in this life there never again will be stormy weather, but rather because no powerful storm you ever found yourself facing can match the power of the Creator and Savior of heaven and earth's love for you. And love, this is his promise, love will be with you always, as love will, in love's time and in love's way, see you through. So, well, so, 
stormy weather or not, peace be with you. Amen.